you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week, we are discussing a very indie comic. Indie as in not even from the likes of Image or a smaller company. Indie as in an artist I follow on Twitter posted a comic for free to read on Twitter. And it was really good. And I happened to have just read it when it was time to pick what we would discuss next. So it was on my mind. So we're talking about it. We are going to be talking about a comic called The Bride of God. This is by Twitter user at Penguin Frontier. And like I said, the comic is available for free to read on their Twitter. I'm gonna call them they them, I suppose, because I don't see any definitive gender declaration anywhere on their profile. This is a Japanese artist, so most of their posts are in Japanese with some occasional English. So it's the sort of thing where it's a bit harder to, I guess, just sort of like, you know, gather information about them. But they also seem like they probably haven't put that much actual info about themselves out besides just the work itself. But they are known primarily in just like, fandom fan art spaces as a BL art maker. If you go to their profiles on anything, that is a not safe for work warning off the bat. But <laughs> yeah, it's at Penguin Frontier on Twitter. Um, I'll probably include a link in the episode description as well to where you can get the PDF version of this on Gumroad. Like I said, it's basically free to read on Twitter, but if you get the PDF, you get a few extra back pages of details, just like fervor about the setting and some like, I guess, character sketches, you would call them uh, the back matter, essentially. And yeah, it's really good. It's really pretty, and it was on my mind, and we hadn't covered a BL anything in a long time. I think the last would have been Starfighter almost a year ago, so I figured it was time that we got back to that particular interest of mine. I suppose wow, that of, long, yeah. Yeah, I suppose of that, I'll turn it to you if you had anything you wanted to start with or just like first impressions you said it was pretty and i concur that's yeah. gonna be my main impression throughout this 
I, I, I thought it was good because it was very nice to look at consistently all the way through and sometimes extremely nice to look at. Yeah. And like this artist, as far as I can tell, you know, of the work I'm familiar with mostly does just like erotic fan art, basically, you know, it's very much like a gay porny Twitter artist. And before this, I was only able to find one other very short, much shorter than this comic that they had done. So as far as I can tell, this is not someone who has a lot of experience doing comics, you know, and it all seems like very like self put together, self published, certainly nothing in the way of like professional comic companies and such and for someone who seemingly has like such a short resume of comic making their skill not just as an artist but in terms of like visual storytelling in comic form is shockingly good yeah, there's a huge difference between like posting a sexy nightcrawler picture on Twitter at a wild guess, um, and posting like a comic that you can read and understand, which this is. Like it it's I had assumed that this was from someone who had a bit more work than what you're describing, had done like more something more professional than what you're describing. So that just makes it more impressive. Yeah. And like I mentioned before, like there is a language barrier. So it's possible that they've put out like something else that I'm unaware of. But this at least definitely isn't like a really established and like widely working creator. I suppose I can go ahead and give just sort of like a little bit of an overview of the most base tenets of the story and plot so that we can then just sort of dive in where we want as we go from there. But essentially, The Bride of God takes place within an isolated village. The visuals are giving specifically sort of like a pre-industrialized version of japan a small village that's just sort of like you know surrounded by fields on all sides very rural looking and our main characters are a pair of young men named atsushi and soma who were childhood friends before being separated for years for plot reasons and then being brought back together and those plot reasons have all to do with a custom, a rigidly held tradition in this village revolving around the Miko. And the way that the book starts off is with giving us some of this mythology. And essentially the idea is or at least like the base idea of the mythology or the sort of religious teaching that has been passed down through generations is that once upon a time, God fell in love with a human 
a human woman specifically and basically just as a result of this union the woman's village prospered you know fertile crops happiness all of what you would expect but that the devil wanted to destroy their paradise by sending down his armies of what are called fiends and we'll talk about the fiends they are essentially these like humanoid entirely white-skinned creatures white as in the shade white not as in caucasian you know dramatically white with these like gaping mouths but no nose or eyes so it's like monstrously humanoid sort of thing it's like and... if a finger had a mouth yeah yeah that's a good way to put like the head shape it's very like just sort of like a blunt slope with like the mouth on the lower half with like nothing above it and essentially like the rest of the passed down myth is that god and his wife referred to as the miko basically defeated evil with the power of love and this role of Amiko is a title that has been passed on through time to protect the village. And essentially what this means is that there is always someone who is isolated underground from being able to interact with almost anyone else. And they are supposed to adhere to the sort of like purity that you would often expect of someone in that role, you know, like abstain from drugs, alcohol, sex, et cetera, et cetera. Very isolated life as a means of like showing respect toward God, essentially uh, staying away from earthly vices and all of that sort of thing. And essentially um, Structure-wise, we sort of go back and forth between the present and some flashbacks. But essentially, Soma and Atsushi know each other as kids. Soma was the village leader's son. And Atsushi was essentially an orphan who they took in. And his official role was, like, to be a servant to Soma, but wasn't, like, mistreated, was more just valued as a friend or younger brother type figure. But not long after Atsushi, you know, joins the family, joins the village, etc., Soma ends up being chosen as the figure who is going to take on the role of Miko because of the prior one, you know, aging, getting weaker, all of that. Time for the new human sacrifice, essentially, which results in Soma, yeah, just living a chaste, holy life underground and in the years between Atsushi wants to get to see him again. And so he trains really hard to become the captain of the guards. There are 
guards in the village whose job it is is to patrol the perimeter of their village, look out for any danger from outside, and look out for any signs of fiends, essentially. And only the captain of the guards is bestowed with, like, the honor and the responsibility of actually being able to physically see the Miko to go underground to check on them daily. And Atsushi has done this not only to get to see his old friend again, but specifically has a old feeling of obligation from when they were children, when Soma would talk about wanting to get to go see the outside world that they're so forbidden from doing because no one's allowed to leave the village because the threat of fiends, essentially the idea being that the Miko can only keep everyone safe and like her godly blessing will only keep them safe within the bounds of the village itself. And yeah, time passes Um, at the time of the bulk of the story these characters are now 19 in Atsushi's case, 23 in Soma's case. So they are young adults now. And Atsushi essentially hates the situation that Soma has been put in. He thinks the tradition is barbaric and he wants to fulfill Soma's childhood wish of getting to see the outside world and Soma pushes back against this when Atsushi talks about it we find out as the story goes on that there is a clear gap in knowledge between what the Miko himself knows and what most other people know including Atsushi because the whole Miko tradition is steeped in history that most villagers are kept in the dark about and essentially believing it to just be a superstition. Atsushi, I'm not sure what language I want to use here. And like, maybe we can talk about it later in a bit in discussing the sex scene in terms of just like what verbs with regards to consent and how this scene plays out. But essentially, Atsushi, like, deflowers Soma in the most, you know, deflower, defile, like that sort of sense of, you know, like, has sex with the intent of literally debasing him and making him no longer pure so that he will no longer be fit to be the Miko and so he will be able to come back up from underground and then presumably the two of them get to go to the outside world but the Miko tradition is not just superstition because no sooner than the two men have sex than a fiend appears in the village and so begins a long series of chaos and violence in the village as Atsushi 
and other guards keep trying to fight them off, but the fiends just keep on multiplying and multiplying in number. And we essentially get the reveal that the fiends are humans themselves. And the religious trappings of the Miko tradition are essentially a generational way of passing down and explaining the society's means of protecting themselves from the results of a virus. Because while this very much has like the rural fantasy aesthetics, this is also science fiction, not just in terms of setting of this specifically being a story in the future, but also, you know, just like the science fiction preoccupation with technology and the whole Miko thing essentially is a way that humanity has devised for self-preservation because essentially in an age past, biological warfare and spread of a virus led essentially all humans to be capable of transforming into fiends, particularly in periods of high stress. And the Mikos are basically hybrids who the passing from Miko to Miko always involves like the predecessor's blood being given to the new Miko. And it's basically a matter of this one sacrifice, essentially having like superhuman pheromones that extend a set distance. Hence all of the specifications of the barriers and not leaving the village because their ability to sort of prevent fiend transformation only extends so far and the chastity element of it and avoiding earthly vices also has to do with like pheromones as being affected by dopamine, et cetera, et cetera. Just like, you know, like, their output, their bodies being affected by what they do. And so abstaining from sexuality and such for those reasons. But now that Soma has been rendered unpure, the fiends just keep on multiplying and multiplying because it is the people of the town themselves being triggered to mutate and then just like the stress of all of that just resulting in fervor and fervor and quicker and quicker mutation as Atsushi keeps trying to fight the fiends off and when Soma ascends from his shrine underground to find Atsushi Atsushi has at last transformed himself into a fiend who lunges at Soma, biting him. And Soma then stabs Atsushi through the head. And the ending is essentially this sort of heartfelt scene of Soma talking to himself as he and 
the dying Atsushi bleed out on the ground. Does that sound like, I guess, at least a furrow enough explanation to start with? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was very fur. What did you think of the sort of conveyance of like the mythology and the like religious trappings and everything like what did you think of the whole like spiritualism as reinforcements of this tradition and everything i like the way it played with um religion as a tool to control society like so that people follow all the rules rather than explain the actual reality of the situation and the science behind what they're doing, they cover it all in these religious trappings because, I mean, frequently people are more likely to actually go along with something that's like a cultural faith thing than they are if you tell everyone to wear masks. It's a bit different from telling them to go to mass. You know, <laughs> one of those is more popular. Um, so yeah, I, I liked that. I do think, I mean, the way it operates obviously is just kind of set up for the story where, especially like the purity angle is something where I'm like, I mean, that doesn't necessarily make scientific sense. So like the, the way that the Mikos work scientifically is kind of nonsense, but it's, it's fine because it works for the plot. But I like it. I like that it looks like a fantasy story, but it's a sci-fi story. That's re always really fun to me. Um, or vice versa, when it goes the other way, too. Yeah, I appreciate the sort of dual genre aspect of it. Or really even beyond those two, too, because it's like sci-fi and fantasy and romance and like aspects of the latter half visually are very horror as well like i really like how it manages to blend just like all of those modes especially with regards to like i'm partial to a future dystopia that sort of has an older looking society in terms of what we think of like structurally due to just like the results of collapse and all of that yeah, it's very dark tower. The main civilization in that is basically characterized as like medieval Europe, but it all looks like a Western. The way that the story is sort of like ordered and structured to the opening pages are these three splash pages in a row that are sort of just like establishing the mythos quite quickly for the reader. And, you know, it basically gives like the whole idea of what is Miko? What are fiends? What is this tradition as it relates to the town now? And I think it works on multiple levels. One, the sort of like use of splash page you know, use of just these big singular images is that there is just sort of like a traditional like religious art feel to it, you know, 
the decision not to render these in like multi-panel pages, but instead sort of comes off as like these really meticulous, like say just like religious paintings, the degree of reverence that this subject matter is often rendered in and with an art historically I think is really effective and it sort of like underlines the idea of this as a religion that is passed down and then in context to it works within the literal sense where we see Soma sort of like reading these stories to Atsushi from a book so we can sort of picture, you know, like similar illustrations to these being included there. But then on a meta level to beyond all of that, it allows the creator to right off the bat, just give us these really lushly detailed, intricate images right off the bat. And I think it just really immediately shows off all the artistic skill. I especially... My favorite of the three is page two with all of the fiends descending from the sky in this horrifying mass. What about you? Uh, I mean, I agree on the second one being the best. Uh, the composition of that's really great. And it's um, all three are illustrated in a slight... Well, Sorry, they're all colored in a slightly different way from the rest of the story. Um, there's a lot more texture, like, put onto the page, especially actually on the second one where we have these lines going down, um, as though it's trying to look more like it's something that's been painted onto wood, um, rather than the rest of the comic, which is uh, much cleaner, like, more digital... Like, these are still clearly colored digitally, but I, there's been an attempt to make it feel a little bit more like an actual classical art piece, which really adds to the feel of it. Um, Yeah, <laughs> I really like the coloring. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Texturally, especially, yeah, like the lines and sort of the patterns really help give it that feeling of non-digital media and yeah the colors we've talked about on and off air how strong those are i guess we can just like sort of keep going with the colors for a bit they're so pretty they're always so pretty and not only are they pretty but I think Penguin Frontier does a really good job of using colors and shifts and hue to help immediately visually sell with the turn of a page, like a change in setting across like time or scene or the mood. For example, like the flashback scenes to our two main characters' childhoods largely have warm tones to them where on a literal level it is sort of mimicking the way that light is cast from lamps like as they're reading 
and there's just like these hues in the sense of like red and orange like flashing upon everything else in a way that's sort of like warm but somber at the same time and then when we do the cut to the present day it's really immediately felt because we go from like this heavily red orange sort of sense to Atsushi standing out working in the fields and just these beautiful bright blue skies and like the yellow greens of the vegetation and the various color schemes just like across setting and location just really sort of add contrast to the different locales especially with regards to like how stuffy it is underground you know versus how much more vibrant the real world is and just all the more reason for Asushi to want to get Soma to the real world does that make sense yeah um I also really love the like strong association of specific colors with specific characters and like specific themes um like because he's the Miko um Atsushi uh, sorry I'm I'm about to put to this. Hang on, Suma, <laughs> um, has white hair and is wearing like white robes with the red accent color, and that like striking white and red is a consistent through line with uh both the fiends and like the images of the Miko and God in the like prologue, and through to the end. Whereas um. At Sushi, because he's like the captain of the guard, is wearing this sort of earthy blue color, and the contrast between the essentially, well, actually, I think literally in some cases, glowing white robes and like the earthy blue is really strong. Um, and the way that by the end of the story, uh, the village up above ground, even though it's um, we're no longer underground, the coloring has shifted so that everything has that same like darker dank quality because it's raining outside that it did underground and now that the fiends and you know the blood coming out of them are everywhere it's also got that strong red white association uh hang on i was going somewhere with that oh my god but the way those two colors the red and the white by the end of the book have completely taken over the story uh like we end with just red and white as the only colors are left like it drowns out everything else i just think it's a very effective use of color that that's the thing that i think is strongest about this more than anything else i think the story is quite interesting but like the way the color is used as part of that story it's really strong work and yeah, the um the flashbacks all having that consistent orange glow, which you know is in universe explained through all the lanterns and stuff, but also it's it's so consistent, it's just very effective, like color blocking for the story, and a very effective use of color to tell this story. Yeah, I completely agree. With regards to Selma the robes 
are so distinct from what all of the like guards and normal citizens wear in a way that feels really appropriate for clergy or monks or just you know a religious garb and of course there's the visual color tie to the fiends that we get as we learn more about the relation between fiends and Miko and the idea of the Miko as someone who's like on the precipice of mutating or like is a state between and I do also really love the way that the rest of the world just sort of fades out to white, like you mentioned at the end, where in the final scene and talk between Soma and the now fiend Sushi, as it keeps going, we just get like less and less background rendering of the background details of the ruined town around them and it by and large just zooms in on just them and the white and the red of their skin of the robes of the ground of the blood just like the way that the rest of the world sort of literally becomes a haze wherein all that we really see and focus on is these two characters as their final moments are really only focused on each other, you know, sort of mirroring that I really like. Oh, and I guess one more thing to color wise real quick before I forget the sort of consistency of color choices also gets applied to the ward balloons and the, um, and the fonts in a way that I like. And how, like, Atsushi's font always has a blue border to it, while Soma's has the red. And generally, when a different character beyond those two is talking, you know, it'll be something else. So that it always helps maintain clarity of who's talking, who's speaking, even in cases where it'll be like, a ward bubble superimposed on a different image so that we're not actually in that panel seeing who's talking, but the combination of like text color and context clue still keeps it perfectly clear who's speaking. Yeah, that's a really effective lettering choice. I lack the sort of cultural and architectural historical knowledge to necessarily feel like I really know like all the specific vocabulary of some of what I'm seeing in the background but I still at least aesthetically really love the look of the sort of underground shrine area and like the stairs down and then there's specifically at one part is like this hole in the ground, like looking down, like directly above this sort of altar space. And we get multiple panels that are sort of like transposed, like text of a ward bubble over top of like just that image. 
as we're sort of like looking up or looking down through the hole of like the sunlight down into the shrine. And I'm not sure if these are meant to be like wooden pillars or if it's ribbon, but there's these like crossing red patterns just like illuminated by the cascading sunlight and it's all just very pretty but also like specifically the way in which like these angles are chosen specifically gives it a sort of ascent or descent to or from a heaven or hell sort of sense to it that I really appreciate and just what it makes me think about thematically and maybe this goes without saying, but I'll just specify that when I say heaven or hell, I don't mean a Christian context. You know, none of this is giving specifically Christianity. All of the talk of God is, you know, not in that specific context. But yeah, I don't know. I just really like the setting of the underground area where Soma lives and just like how distinct it's made from the rest of the town. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I um I think that all the red arches and the um the red like planks of wood that are crisscrossing each other heading up that sort of shaft above him are meant to be um at the very least visually reminiscent, if not literally Tory gates. Because those are usually red, from what I understand. I, I had to double check the name, so. <laughs> but it's yeah. um, you put them at the entrance of like Shinto shrines. Yeah, I think we get to like a few instances throughout of what are like definitely Tory gates, like when they show like the very top of the stairs and such. Yeah, that's that's definitely the aesthetic that it's going for, and I think it looks it looks really great. Yeah, and like those sort of details are more or less the only details that there really are to grab at in the shrine area because it's largely like this red ornamentation standing out against what is otherwise just like a bleak, barren, sort of empty setting for the underground which then just contrasts more against the visualizations of the above ground. Specifically, we get some shots of just like the fields and just like all of the vegetation and the clouds. And it's just like a very effective contrast to me of just like all of the life that's blooming above ground. You know, even in this post-apocalyptic setting, just like the life that is allowed to continue, keep going on because of the Miko and the ritual, you know, just like the cost of this one isolated figure sort of living in a nothing space so that everyone else can have some semblance of a normal life. I love the cyan tone used for the sky. It's so pretty. 
And like it's so distinct as well from like the blues that Atsushi's wearing, so we don't associate him with the sky in this, even though he's blue, which like normally would be an association you might make, because it's such a specifically like different tone of blue that's used. Yeah. He winds up looking more like the walls of the cave than anything else. Yeah. Which on the note of the cave and like yeah just like his visual reminiscence to it and sort of like the separation between nature and the characters etc etc what do you think of I guess just sort of like the way that the story handles the delivery of this information about just like you know, like this sort of ritual as it affects everyday lives and about just like the roles that these characters play interpersonally, you know, like one-on-one -on -one and sort of like to the town as a whole. I mean, I do think it's very focused on like Atsushi's story. So like there's definitely space where like, we could see more about how it affects everyone else, but, like, it, it's mostly just in conversation where it seems that people don't even know, like, who is the Miko, which is actually kind of odd, because they don't seem that much younger than Atsushi is. Like, they should have been around when he got made Miko. Like, people know who it is, right? Like, otherwise Atsushi wouldn't know. It's a small enough village that I feel like you would you would have to know. So that doesn't feel like a hundred percent consistent to me, if I'm honest. I, I like the idea if it had been a conversation with like little children, but it was people who are the same age, and that's the most of what we see of what the rest of the town thinks of this situation. But um yeah, I, I mean I, I like the way it's done with Atsushi and the way that like Atsushi sees it as this, you know, heinous tradition that is pointless and stupid because he is the god captain and he's never seen anything at the borders or anything like that and like the way that his position and thought is completely logical and of course the only reason he's wrong is because it's actually for an entirely different purpose than he's been told i get the sense that the truth regarding the fiends and the mikos etc there's like sort of in a middle space between being entirely secret and entirely known because it definitely seems like some villagers know more than others, largely dependent on like age or status. Like we get some flashes to like talks between the elder and some other assumedly higher up advisors or just like you know pillars of the community or whatever the case may be and it gives me the vibe of like some people probably know more than others but it's largely not talked about and that's probably largely frowned to talk about too much even if it's not necessarily a complete like forbidden subject does that make any sense yeah, I get the impression that it's just, like, the five dudes who are on the ruling council know. 
because they kind of have to in order to do it. And then whenever someone gets inducted or whatever, however the government structure works, they presumably tell them. Yeah. Yeah, my hand wave for, like, the upper guards not knowing would probably just, oh, I just be like, uh, would probably I just, just be it... like, oh, oh, do these two, like, did they come into the village older or something? But, yeah, it's a potential inconsistency. Well, they can't have come from anywhere else. Because if you go outside of the range, like, the implication at the end is that some of the villages are communicating via like radio perhaps or something like that because they're, they're keeping watch on each other that there's another village that we see at the end where they're discussing that there seems to be something wrong with the one that we've been in this whole time but like because of the range of the Mikos people can't be physically traveling between them so presumably um, those soldiers who don't know that the Miko right now is a man, they, they should, right? Because they would they would have been there. That, that was the thing that struck me as odd. There's a whole conversation where they talk about the Miko as being like a maiden. And then Atsushi goes downstairs and is like, yeah, the Miko's a guy. And like, okay, it's a secret rule that someone has, but then there's like a whole ceremony where he's like out for people to see <laughs> and everyone i'm like so people must know right who it was because there's you know there's only so many people in this village and like yeah one kid goes missing the day there's a big ceremony announcing the miko you know who that is fair enough yeah yeah like i'm not sure like how big the town is but definitely does seem like it's meant to be pretty small it seems like the kind of place you could walk across it in a day. Yeah. It's it's small enough that people should be like, ah, yeah, our current Miko, Suma. I don't think you could hide it very well. Sure, yeah. With regards to the sort of hiding it, sort of secret knowledge aspect to... How do I put this? I guess I just find it sort of interesting the way that the plot reveals sort of recontextualize the secrecy of the whole thing. Because just like the base setting of, you know, here's our village, here's our customs. We have specific ways of doing things and these are the ways in which they are done. And we do not endorse, we heavily condemn sort of straying from that especially like physically leaving you know like there's it would be very easy to take that sort of conceit to a sort of authoritarian place thematically you know just that sort of like social constriction and Atsushi understandably sort of takes it that way you know does not respect the tradition because i suppose partially because of how much he's kept in the dark he is never able to like recognize anything he sees is like evidence of the tradition working because he's not allowed to see 
not able to see what it would look like if it wasn't, you know? So to him, it is very much just this horrible tradition that Soma is suffering from. And I guess I just think it's sort of interesting to get to see that sort of closed-in society rendered in a context wherein those admonishments don't just come from a sort of self-interested sense of limiting other human behavior. Because, like, limiting and sort of controlling the townspeople's thoughts and actions is still you know, a paramount concern. But it's just sort of interesting to see that come from a place of sort of more actual, genuine life or death fear in a sci-fi context as opposed to just, I guess, a more standard sort of, oh, the village elders are wrong and we need to break from tradition. Did any of that make sense? Yeah, I um, as I said earlier, I think the way that clearly this system was set up, because if you, you know, people are never if if you were if this works, right, and you have the Miko, people are never going to see a fiend. There's never going to be any evidence of this working beyond the fact that it keeps working. But you know, how's that going to work three generations down? So this either largely devolving into a religion or being purposely set up as a religion makes a lot of sense because like you kind of take the idea that the Miko works to keep the fiends away on faith but the natural problem with that is of course at some point someone is going to see this religion not as something good to have faith in but as something that's limiting and cruel to what they want to do which I this doesn't work with the way things turn out, but obviously Atsushi is, like, at the very least, interested in men. You know, and I think with the, all the talk about, like, the limitations of religion historically, that's obviously an ongoing problem. And so the way that this system gets broken is the cautions put in place for sensible reasons because they no longer say what the reasons actually are because it's all been couched in like ceremony and tradition instead of in like the practicality that it's actually based in the whole system gets destroyed and you know everybody dies kind of horribly i think that's that's really fun and interesting it's it's cool and i agree you don't really see that very often whenever you see one of these more controlling societies there's normally like it's normally just a way to set up a couple limited people to power and not a way to actually keep other people safe yeah and it'll be like a setup for the hero to sort of escape from and ideally like sort of like teach the more cautionary figures to break from tradition sometimes you know it's a very like sort of disney princess breaking out sort of thing and to the topic of like the traditions falling apart as 
the generations move on and don't recognize the system for what it is. In the end, as Soma is walking his way towards Asushi, we specifically get the narration from him in which he asks himself if things would have turned out differently in a different context, because specifically some of the later flashbacks we get reveal that the entire reason Soma became the Miko was because the village elders at first were suggesting that it be Asushi, and Soma essentially took on the role to protect him from having to endure that. And we basically get Soma being like, would things have been different had I not learned the truth? And he says, no, I would have surely done the same as you, Asushi. Which sort of adds this element of inevitability to human behavior in the way that it plays out here with just like the constricting against imposed barriers and traditions and specifically, you know, like each of them's understandable desire to protect each other because... I don't think I've really talked a lot about this on air today, but both Soma and Atsushi are protective figures. Soma in the idea, you know, the ritualized tradition idea of the Miko as this holy figure to protect the whole village. And then Atsushi as the captain of the guard again, as a protector of the village and also a protector of Soma and just like the ways in which they really mirror each other so much and that despite occupying these different stations, they share so much of the same motivation and just sort of having the ending on that note of either one of them would have done what they could to help the other, regardless of the consequences, you know. And then this is sort of carried through in the final scene where we see citizens of another village reacting to the downfall of theirs. And the last page is of these two young boys who visually look very similar to the way that Asushi and Soma do in the opening flashback with the elder again here talking about keeping the younger safe and yeah I don't know if I lost my way toward a conclusion out of all of that but I just think the way that all of the characters motivations mirror each other and just sort of keep the thematic through lines going is really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the way that both of them are in like explicitly protective roles. I I yeah, I like that mirroring. That's very good. Yeah. It helps the two of them to me feel like they're really on equal footing. Like, even though Soma is 
essentially, you know, like the trope of a princess locked up in a tower or whatever the case may be, he still has a lot of agency, you know, and like both characters really feel like they're on similar enough footing and they're both grounded and developed enough that they don't feel flat to me. Yeah. I no, guess... especially given the length of the comic. They're both very well drawn. I would say they're the only two characters I think who we even get names for, so they are the only two. Well, no, there is uh, Megumi. Uh, yeah, Megumi. Uh, but, like, given the length of the comic, those two being as, like, well-drawn and well-characterized as they are, I think is excellent. Yeah. Which I don't think we've specified. This comic is only 60 pages. And it pulls all of this off in only 60 pages. I think it does so really well. It's very dense. Yeah. I guess a last thing in regards to their relationship with these two characters in particular. I guess just did you have anything to say about the sex scene itself? And just sort of like, I guess, just like the framing of any of it. To be entirely honest, it's like, even having read this as many times as I have, I'm still not sure that I entirely know what I think about it. I think that decisions on a character level make sense. I like how I feel about it either. Like it, you it makes sense for the, this to happen. This is the logical endpoint of everything that happened so far in the story, and everything that Atsushi knows about the situation. And it also makes sense given everything that Suma knows that Suma would be let's generate a so the way it plays out. I'm like, yeah, I think this necessary turning point it's very quick you know when you said we were reading something that was bl i was expecting something that had you know a, like we normally multi sequences it's only three pages see and even then there's only like one that's really hot and happy and yeah i mean i don't even know what to call it necessarily that's the thing for me, too, is like, you know, on a certain level, it's like, because it doesn't just feel straightforwardly like a rape scene. You know what I mean? It feels like it's occupying a more complicated space than that. Because like, if I just like describe the start of the event just like on paper, just stated outright. That's what it sounds like. But like the execution as the act continues and the ways in which Soma responds as it's ending and as the story continues don't feel like that. You know, like it feels like a like an initial rejection or hesitancy followed by I guess it just like, you know, it doesn't seem simply 
entirely non-consensual and it seems sort of more morally gray as it plays out i guess yeah i i think i've got two thoughts on it so i think that like within the context of the narrative this is clearly something that both of them want but due to outside factors suma doesn't want to have sex but like not because suma doesn't want to have sex because suma thinks he shouldn't which is a different thing and second it very much reminds me of the james bond movie goldfinger where um pussy galore at the start of her like first sort of sex scene with james bond is saying no very repeatedly and i think at one point hits him in the face um and then after we fade to black on that uh for the rest of the movie she's teamed up with him and their best buds because of uh well frankly in those movies it's frequently james bond's magic penis that turns the evil woman good um where like even if like you can look at this situation and point at it and say that definitely looks a lot like rape the narrative doesn't think that i don't think this is a very different situation from um void where i was reading it and i was pointing at everything and going okay but this is so nasty that i'm like does the author realize how bad this is for these people this characters be doing this whereas in this i'm like i mean it's weird i wouldn't call it a great thing to have happen to someone necessarily but like it's also in this weird gray space rather than being something that's defined yeah i think and, like, it's the oh, narrative intentions clear in the same way that like Goldfinger is a bizarre example, but that's sort of my go-to thing in like fiction when I'm like, don't do this, people, because this is really weird to do. This is not how a sex scene should start, but this is just how this one started. Yeah, and like in this case, it's like I do still think it's well written, you know. Like in this case, it's not even like one that makes me go, you know, like oh don't do this you know like i think that yeah this feels like much more conscious of what it's doing than yeah like say void did where as if the rest of it like it feels well written it feels like the natural progression of events and the sort of complicated nature of it just feels like appropriate to the characters and appropriate to the complicated constrictive situation in which they have been placed yeah yeah exactly i have at least one final note to mention which the art is great throughout we've talked about the art i think it's specifically great at visual pacing and decisions and like page and panel layout composition for leading the eye etc and one of the best single examples of that for me is the turn from page 43 to 44 where atsushi is with his other guard 
his fellow guard and they're like pondering why there are so many fiends where are they all coming from and we like follow Atsushi turning over his shoulder to then like literally turn the page as he has finished turning his shoulder and his fellow guard has fully morphed so that we get like the fiend head in the human clothes is a really great page turn to me. Yeah, and this is the exact thing you would expect an artist on Twitter to not be good at. Because, like, if you're mostly doing, like, fan art, stuff like that, the majority of your time drawing is spent drawing human forms, so you can expect some really good drawings of that, but you can't necessarily expect, like, effective panel composition, or, like, knowledge of how to pace page turns, but this is here so that's great yeah like these aren't just you know like really pretty still images like this is you know not just lovely individual panels but they work really well in concert the eye is led along the page and from page to page really effectively I think, too, that the next, like, page turn between 49 and 50 is also great of the, like, Atsushi and Soma looking across each other with Soma extending his hand. And then the page turn to the now um, horizontal reads like if you printed this like this would be a two-page spread of like the two of them with Atsushi now having transformed to full fiend and just like each of them like on their side with just like the gap between is just really effective to me yeah agreed these page turns where people are suddenly turning into fiends are all very good yeah. Yeah. It's all just really good. We've said, or at least like touched on most of the things I wanted to touch on. All of the stuff like linking like the social barriers and the physical barriers of the town and just, you know, all of the various plot and character drama and how it pertains and enforces everything thematically is really good. I love that it has the moral complexity that it does, you know, as we're largely rooting for and understand these characters who literally cause the complete destruction of their community, but you literally entirely understand how they get to that point, you know? Um, it's not like he did it on purpose. <laughs> He didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. Just like, I appreciate that this creator just like allows the story to be and allows that complexity and sympathy and does not try to like proselytize or like, you know, like this is, there's enough nuance here that I think it would have been 
detrimental to try and be like too condemning or too like explicit moralistically you know like to try and have like a tie up with a bow or anything like that i think that what we get the layers to everything just make it all the better but with that said i guess is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we wrap up no i think we've covered everything okay well yeah that was the bride of god by penguin frontier um available for free on twitter at penguin frontier the free version basically has everything except for the follow-up text pages and there is like one page of the sex scene that's omitted but you can also <laughs> get the pdf specifically the it specifically omits the most explicit one of the middle one with no dialogue yep yep where you that see the very specific like the bottom right panel of literal penetration with sweat dripping down in a way that looks like ejaculate yeah that's the one <laughs> um but also available on gumroad i think that the pdf it's cheap i think it was only like five dollars or something like that so i would recommend tipping the artist for this get the full version it's worth it it's great it's just really fucking good all around. And yeah, I am glad to have done a BL thing again for the first time in a while. And it sounds like you were more into this one than some of the past ones. Certainly Void at the least. I think nearly everything we've covered has beaten Void for me. <laughs> but yes, this was good. Um, I, I'm I'm really into the colors of this one. Penguin Frontier yeah. should consider regular work as a color artist and give everybody else colors that look this good. With this wrapped up, though, what are we discussing next time? Next week, we're going to be reading Daredevil 227 to 233, uh, otherwise known as Born Again. Uh, this is the start of my last three picks before our two-year anniversary being things where it's like how the fuck have i not picked something like that yet so i have not picked any daredevil yet which seems like a shame so we're gonna go with um i don't think it's the best daredevil story but it is the daredevil story that you hand someone who's either not read comics or not read daredevil before and you go this is kind of what daredevil's like yeah yeah spoiler alert it's good but we'll see you all then and in the meantime bye bye be excellent to each other <laughs>